Good evening. Uh, tonight we're going to be talking about uh, Solomon's Temple. We're going to talk about the when of it, the what of it, the why of it, and the who of it. But before we do that, I want to immediately put you at your tables. And each of the tables has one of these little bags like this. I need you to take the two pieces. I need you to do this now. Take the two pieces out of that bag and answer the two questions. Observe the pieces one at a time. What do you think is, in each, is the image on each piece? What do you think on each piece it is? Okay. And then what is the overall picture puzzle based on your idea of that? So I'm looking at that and I'm going, okay, now what do I see on that piece of, what do I think that is on that piece? And then what is this a part of? What is the bigger picture? Okay, you have one that's a little bit easy and one that's really hard. So do that now. Write down your answers. You have sheets of paper on your table. Assign somebody to write down your answers. And then if when you have time, answer that third question or uh, that second question. So go to work. Here's what I need for each table to do. I need each table to give the big piece to one person in your table and have every one of them come up here and see if they can start to put the big piece puzzle together. Everybody got that? So go ahead and come on up. But in the meantime, I need some of you tables to tell me what you think the big piece puzzle picture is. So... Tammy, what does your table think the big picture, big pi that picture is? We, what? we think it is children at a park. Children at a park, back here. What do you all think? Yeah. Still delivering. Still okay, back there. What do you think it is? A zoo? Okay. People at a zoo? Australian animals and their babies. Okay, that's interesting. You guys? Polar bears and penguins drinking Coca-Cola back here. A circus. Boy at school. Boy at school. Kids at the zoo back there. Kids on a playground. What about here? Monkey see, monkey do. Monkey see, monkey do back there. Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. Okay, that's interesting. Back there. Building with a window. Carrie. Okay, and last one. Animals in a zoo. Animals in the zoo. Okay, what do we hear from there? What do we think it is now, you guys, to put that all together? 16 pieces. It's a zoo. We think it's a zoo. All right, here's what the picture actually is. It's a strange zoo. All right? Any guesses on... Thank you for doing that. Any guesses what the second picture is? This is very hard. It's a map. Anything, any other guesses? Yes, Carrie. Ocean and the sky, and uh, something in front of you. Is that right? Okay. Before I reveal the second picture, please put each piece back in that puzzle, in that bag, particularly the smaller ones, because that's a thousand piece puzzle, and I don't want to lose 16 pieces, okay? Now, here's the reveal this is the second picture River Seine. How about that, Cammie? Good job. Tammy actually wrote down on her sheet, it was the River Seine. She did. Now, there's a point to this illustration. 
the illust this illustrates how we often approach studying the Bible. We take a passage out like a piece. We observe it. We interpret it. We even maybe apply it without often knowing if there's even a bigger picture or understanding at all what the bigger picture might be. And there's a real danger in that. And we saw that with the way that you thought each of those pieces demonstrated what the picture was. Some of them were close. Tammy was really close by just one little piece. But imagine, but some of you were really far off. <laughs> uh, and that's okay. That's, I'm trying to illustrate that danger. Because this is the way we often go about interpreting the Bible. Tim Keller said it this way, we usually read the Bible as a series of disconnected stories, each with a moral for how we should live our lives. It is not, rather it comprises a single story. And I have a confession to make. In 1999, I did a series out of First and Second Samuel on the, on the King David. And I, I basically did that very thing. I moralized David as somebody who we should follow to become a man after God's own heart. And I, I never connected David to the bigger story. See, the problem is David was never to be the object of our gaze. All throughout the Old Testament, those characters and those narratives were only to point forward to the hero of the story, Jesus. You see, David, even though he conquered the giant who? Goliath. He could not conquer his greatest giant, sin, especially sexual immorality. And that's how he is an incomplete hero who points to our king, who points to the ultimate king, Jesus. So I'm telling you, I struggle with this. It's not something that it's just distant out there that nobody struggles. And so when we go to these passages throughout the Old Testament, it is so much of a tendency for us to forget how that passage connects to the bigger story and then within that to look at that passage. Okay? Now, with that in mind... I think these are some of the questions you ought to ask yourself, and I ought to ask myself, we ought to ask ourselves every time we open up a passage. What is that overall redemptive story, and what does this passage show or add to the redemptive story? How does the passage point to the hero of the story, Jesus Christ. You remember in Luke 24 when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples and, and, they, and, and he engages them in this conversation. They have no idea who he is. He purposely hides who he is, his identity. And he talks about how Christ had to suffer as they were downcast and, and, and overwhelmed. And he, said, and he went to the Old Testament and he, he showed them how the Christ had to suffer in all the places through the Old Testament where the Christ was pointed to. And I can imagine how incredibly moving that was. They even said later, were not our hearts burning within us as we walked along the way? They see, they saw the overall story and they saw where they fit in it and it was emp empowering and impassioning to them. And then what does that passage show me about God? Because see, we forget the story is not about us. This is a story about God and his hero, Jesus. Now we have a part in the story, but it's not about us. It illuminates our part in the story. And so then that's what the last question, what does the story show me about my role in the story? That's what I think you ought to be, we ought to be asking ourselves in every passage we go to. Okay? So with that in mind, could I pray?
Father, we're trying to, in these times, understand this grand redemptive story of yours. We know we are looking through a glass dimly. We know we need your Holy Spirit to illuminate this for us. We cannot, in and of ourselves, really understand the answers to any of those questions that I just went over. So would you, out of your grace, would you, in fact, do that very thing, Holy Spirit? Would you illuminate the redemptive story, your hero Jesus, and our place in that story tonight, I ask in your name. Amen. So, let's, t- let's talk about the when of the temple. Now, we've been operating on this casket empty acronym. And so, it would seem like, if you remember what casket empty, what's the C stand for? A? S? K? E? T? We would think we're at the T because we're talking about the temple when we're not tonight. We'll go, we will arrive there later. We are right at the very beginning of the K. The king's period is just beginning. We talked about, the Kathy talked about that last week with Saul and David. We are, does anybody know in the timeline where we are year-wise? Anybody tell me that? If you broke out your timeline, where are we when Solomon builds the temple? Close, very close. I'm sorry? Like it, around 966 to 959, seven-year period where he built the temple. But I want us, that's where we would see here. We're right, right about here on the K, on the line there. We're going to talk about the kings more later, but we're now talking tonight about that time frame. That's one way to look at the when. I'd like to look at another one, though, if we could, and that's to use a little different construct, if I could, for the redemptive story. It's like another box top. We've talked about it often here at New City. It's the creation, fall, redemptive, redemption, consummation construct. Life as it ought to be, life as it is, life as it can be, and life as it will be. And if you remember, creation is Genesis 1 and 2, the fall is Genesis 3, and after 3.15 until Revelation, it's all redemption. From Genesis 3.15, if you remember, the Father, God promises that, that, a, that a child of Mary will crush the head of Satan, and he will crush the heel of, of that son. Now, within that, I want us to think about the temple idea. In the beginning, if you remember, heaven and earth were united. They were together. And in the heaven and earth, God placed mankind, people, and he made them in his image. Why did he do that again? This is a review. You should have, we've gone over this. Why did he make mankind in his image? To bring him glory in what way? Yes. In what way were they going to bring him glory over the rest of creation? To share what, Don? To share in his rule. And I, 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 to, exactly, to be his representative over creation in drawing out all the treasures that were laying there yet to be discovered and unveiled so that the goodness and rich grace of God would be understood. And they were to do that in relationship with him. So not only were heaven and earth united, but God and mankind were united. They were in rich, deep relationship. Okay, then you remember in the fall, and and by the way, where was God in the garden? Where do we see him? Remember? And again, ladies, I need you up here with your mics, by the way, now, if I could. Um, Could just say, I'm going to use you a lot tonight. Where was God in the garden? Where do we find him? He's walking around the garden. What's he doing before that passage in Genesis 3? He's picking up dirt and and he's breathing into it and making what? Adam. 
And then he, t- then he puts Adam to sleep and he takes out a, a rib and he, brings, and he brings forth Eve. And so in the garden, God is walking with and dwelling in Adam and Eve. Now, then Adam and Eve decide to rebel. They don't like the plan that God designed and they rebel against that plan. And God told them when they did that, they would die. And at that moment, they did die. Heaven and earth, and at that moment, God was now going to be separated from man's spirit. The spirit of God left man's, the, man, the spirit of mankind. They were separated now, and they died spiritually. Because death is not cessation. Death is separation. They would eventually die physically when their soul separates from their body, right? We don't think a person dies and ceases. Their soul just separates from their body. So death is not cessation, it's separation. So when they ate of the tree, they did die. And when that happened, this happened. Heaven and earth now had to be separated because God dwells in heaven, no longer on earth. And man dwells separated from God on earth. But God in his passion for restoration in Exodus through the Mosaic covenant. Well, actually, let's go back. In Abraham, through the Abrahamic covenant, he promises that there will be a day that God and man will walk together again, and he will bless all of the earth through that Abrahamic covenant. Then the Mosaic covenant happens. And God makes a provision, and we call it the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was a place where heaven and earth now would actually intersect. It would be God dwelling now on the earth. And that was where men and women and God were supposed to connect in that provision under the Mosaic Covenant. We're talking tonight about the temple, and I'll go back to that, but I want you to move forward to see this flow because then the Jesus inaugurates the new covenant. And in the new covenant, we're seeing a much greater overlap of heaven and earth as God dwells in the church. And he says, may my kingdom come, you pray, my, your kingdom come, Lord, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the temple is now a people. It's no longer a place. It's not limited by a physical limitation. It's a living being that is growing, but it's not yet complete. We see that in the consummation. In the consummation, in in Revelation 22, this is the way it's described. I'm sorry, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, listen to this, men and women, now the dwelling of God is with men. They will be his people, and he, God himself, will be with them and be their God, and he will live with them. And if you go a little farther into that passage, John the Apostle says in 20, verse 23, when he looked out over the new heaven and earth and the new Jerusalem, he said, I did not see a temple in that city. Because there was no longer a need for a physical place or even a people. God was going to dwell throughout creation because once again, heaven and earth were being united. They were brought now together again. And mankind and God were now back in relationship. God was living with them and, and living in them. Now, I share this with you because I want you to grasp, if you could tonight, just a moment of the passion God has to dwell with people. 
how much effort, how much energy has been expended over the centuries to bring mankind back to the place that he could dwell with them. And how this sweep has been moving throughout history since the fall. So into that flow tonight, we get to talk about the temple. Before we do, though, what I'd like you to do now is take out a sheet of paper and as a group, as best you can on that piece of paper, recreate the diagram I just had up on the, on the board. As best you can. Try that right now. And then discuss what thoughts does the diagram crystallize and what thoughts or questions do you have? That's good enough if whatever you are, just go ahead and talk about question two and, and uh, I'm sorry, question three. Please just discuss what, if any, that helps you understand or what questions does the diagram illustrate? And I, I did, while you're thinking of that, I want to go back uh, because uh, the, Carrie realized I had copied incorrectly. This should be fall, not tabernacle. There weren't supposed to be two tabernacles. That was my... When I was copying and pasting this, it should have been fall at the second, okay? So go ahead and, and don't change your diagram because I'd just like to see how you did, but discuss now that, that question of what does this clarify for you, if any, or what questions do you have? So what we want to talk about now is not the when of the temple. That's what we've just been looking at. I want to talk about the what of the temple, so you all read some passages, you thought about it. This is a time for you all to share with each other what are some things you learned about the temple from your study? And Sarah, could you and, and Michaela go to your places? What did you learn about the temple that Solomon built? It was magnificent. Okay. What, to, explain more of that, Neil. Uh, it was uh, with all the, the gold and the silver and all of the various jewels and everything, it just, just striking in its, in its appearance. It was just magnificently uh, ornate. Okay. Yeah, rich. Thanks, Neil. What else? You can just call it out and we'll pick it up. You don't need to wait for the microphone. What'd you learn? It was smaller than Solomon's palace and took half as long to build as Solomon's palace almost. They returned the Ark there, the Ark of the Covenant. Okay. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Keith. They put the Ark of the Covenant there. What else? When it was done, the cloud of the presence. Say that again, Ed. When it was done, the cloud of God's presence inhabited. Okay. The, the, the glory of the Lord and, the, and fire came and dwelt in the tabernacle. I mean, in the, in the temple, yes, great, great point. Yes, now, Don, you were going to say something? The first place, or the first time that, that God's presence dwelled permanently in the land, the promised land. Okay, so that was the first time that God's presence had a permanent dwelling in the land. Right, okay. Anything else you learned? God's presence there, is that what you said, was conditional on what? What was the condition, Dale? That the people be obedient, mm -hmm. that they not take other gods before him. He said he would, uh, he would consecrate that temple as long as the people obeyed and walked in his ways. Okay. Thank you, Dale. Anything else? It was the foreshadow of the spiritual temple to come. It It was. Very much so. It was, it was a copy or a shadow of a heavenly, permanent, different kind of temple. Anything else? Yes, Carrie. It provided access to God's presence, both for Israel and for Gentiles. Different levels of access. Okay. But 
So it was like the tabernacle in that it provided access to both the Israelites and Gentiles in a little different format. It also More like, uh, and, and by the way, I'll point you to an excellent um, video by the Bible Project on the temple. And uh, it's only six minutes. Stuart mentioned it to me, and I watched it just uh, about uh, 10 minutes before the New City Academy tonight. And they mentioned how it actually didn't, uh, it wasn't so much a picture of heaven as actually it was a picture of the garden, specifically heaven and the earth combined. So anything else? Yes, Tammy. But I'm okay if I get the wrong answer. <laughs> it's, did I read correctly that wherever you are, you turn toward the temple to pray? Mm -hmm. That was what they, that's what the implication was. And who did that sound like? Today. Who does that today? Muslims. They turn to Mecca. And so that was one of the limitations because if you're in a place, you have to point to the place or go to the place. Now, what kind, to Carrie's point, what kind of access did it provide? Who could actually go and dwell with God? Only the high priest. There was really only one person. It's no different than the tabernacle. All right, now, just to give you a little bit of a picture, this is an artist's rendition of, of uh, Solomon's temple. And as, as Neil said, if you remember all that, David gave to the temple to make it possible. We read that last week. Just listen again to this. It says, with all my resources I've provided for the temple of my God, gold for the gold work, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, wood for the wood, as well as onyx for the settings, turquoise, stones of various colors, and all kinds of stone and marble, all of these in large quantities. Besides, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for my, the temple of my God, over and above everything I've provided for this holy temple. 3,000 talents of gold, and 7,000 talents of refined silver. Do you know that it took, besides the seven years that we mentioned, it took 70,000 men to carry the stones and 80,000 stone cutters to make this. 3,600 foremen. That's like the size of Rock Hill. Everybody in Rock Hill went to, the, to go build the temple. This was a massive undertaking. Just to give you another idea again of size, relative size, you see Solomon's temple and the courtyard is here in the orange. It's about, and you notice right below that, that's a football field. So you could go and to Panther Stadium and stick Solomon's temple in the 100 yards of that, and it would be about two-thirds of the courtyard and about half for just actually the temple building. Notice as well, though, there's the size of the, of the tabernacle, and notice the difference between Solomon and Herod's temple. Herod's temple is at least th probably three times bigger than Solomon's temple. Now, what is a temple? Every religion has temples, don't they? You can go to Buddhist temples, you can go to Hindu temples, you can go to Mecca, you can go to Jerusalem and, 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 and see the Dome of the Rock. You can go in all religions have temples. And a temple simply by definition was a place for God to dwell. It's no different for the Israelites. The difference was there was the living God there and they were required and admonished and encouraged to offer sacrifices and prayer to that God. But I want you to, again, don't start with what a temple is from, the man, from mankind's perspective. Remember this from God's perspective. The, the temple demonstrated the desire for God to dwell with a people. Every time they looked at the temple, that's what they were supposed to be reminded of. God wants to dwell with us. But they also needed to be reminded of how much had to be overcome for that dwelling to take place. All the sacrifices, all of the 
the rituals and the reality was only one person a year could actually go into the presence of God. So every time they looked at the temple, I think God wanted them to realize first he desired to live with them and this was not an easy thing to accomplish. Now, what about the, that's the what of the temple. Let's talk about the why. Um, we read this passage for our lesson two weeks ago. I want you to I want to highlight it for you. Somebody read that for me, please. Just who would read that? Okay, Sarah, go ahead. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, "See now, I dwell in a house of cedar." but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, I want to draw your attention to whose idea was it to build the temple? It was David's idea. And in fact, God responds to him by saying, have I ever spoken to those commanders and asked them, why have you not built me a house of cedar? No. He never had spoken about that. The next thing I want you to notice is, actually, let me go back. I want to remind you that God was the one who initiated the tabernacle. God gave six chapters in Exodus 25 through 30 of instructions on how to build the tabernacle. There is no record of any of that for the temple. No instructions of God to build that or how to build it. Then I want you to notice the next passage. Sarah, would you read that again? And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. You shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son." When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So this is in 2 Samuel again, and God continues to talk to him. And I want you to notice again, when David says, I want to build a house for you. What does God say? I will make a house for you, David. You want to build a house for me. That's not what this is about. This is about me building a house for you. And I want to establish your throne forever. And I'll raise up somebody from your own body who will build that house. And his kingdom will last forever. And, you, and so will your therefore kingdom and dominion. Now, this is what we know as the Davidic covenant. And sometimes people refer to the to Solomon's temple as being built under the Davidic covenant. And I want you to hear tonight that's not a united or unanimous opinion. The Solomon temple was built under as Dale said, under a conditional covenant. The Davidic covenant, if you noticed, has no conditions on it. It's an unconditional covenant just like the Abrahamic covenant. 
And there's differences of opinion about what it means about, I will raise up for you an offspring after you shall come for your body, who that refers to. David thinks it refers to Solomon. And three times in 1 Chronicles, and if you want to know the references, I'll show you, David tells Solomon and the nation of Israel, God told him that Solomon was to build the temple. We have no record of that conversation. And there's never a record of any conversation that God told Solomon to build the temple. Now, there are pros for the idea that Solomon was the one to actually build the temple. As I said, Scripture tells us that the Spirit of God told David to do that. And we've mentioned that David thinks clearly that Solomon is God's anointed to build the temple. And as mentioned, the glory of God did descend on the temple. But if you notice in that passage in 2 Kings, it says, now I will consecrate this place. The, the cons against the idea that David and, and got it wrong and Solomon shouldn't have built the temple is this idea that there's no direct command given to Solomon, there's no instructions, and he's not the one referred to in that 2 Samuel 7. In both, both dedications and prayers of Solomon and David, both of them acknowledge that God does not dwell in a house. In fact, God in Isaiah says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house you will build for me? And what is the, my, what is the place of my rest, says the Lord? All these things my hand has made, and thus all things came to be. Don't think you build me a house, people. Don't think that. And if you notice in Solomon's prayer, over and over again, he says, the temple I built. Some people go as far, there are commentators that you can find that will go as far as saying that David and Solomon built the temple out of the flesh of their own pride. They wanted to have a place they could say they built. I don't go that far. I don't go, though, as far as the author of our study that says the building of the temple is the climactic point in Israel's nation. I don't think so. Regardless of where you stand on that, and I would say I think David did the very thing I started the study with tonight. I think David didn't understand the whole story when he heard somebody from your own body is going to build the temple. He didn't understand that God didn't want to dwell in a place. He wants to dwell in people forever. So that least we can say is this. God never intended to have a permanent home. Solomon's temple is only temporary at best, and it is a pointer to the ultimate temple and its builder. At its best, at its magnificence, and I agree with Neil, when I think of the word to describe the temple in its beauty, it is magnificent but it is an incomplete and inadequate place for God to dwell. Not because of God, but because of who he was trying to dwell with. Now, here's what I want you to do in your groups. I want you to write your answers to the following, and then we're going to write these on the board. How does the magnificence of Solomon's temple point to the ultimate and perfect temple. And again, this is the ultimate and perfect temple. How does, and its builder, well, we're just doing this first. How does it point to that? And then how do the inadequacies of Solomon's temple point to our long and need for an ultimate and perfect temple? Do you understand what I'm saying? As a group, determine the pointers. What does it point to in its beauty? 
What does it point to in its inadequacy? You have 10 minutes. We're gonna, then we're going to collect your answers. Okay, what I'd like to do now is hear from you all, and I'm going to write them on the board, some of the significant things that you discussed about both the magnificence and the inadequacy of Solomon's temple in its pointing. So share, me, share with those, us some of them. Either, either column. Okay, and how does that, what does that point out? What does its grandeur point out? Glory of heaven. Glory of heaven or the magnificence of God, the grandeur of God. Okay? Its beauty reflects, as Neil was talking about, some of its beauty is a reflection. All those ornate uh, decorations are reflect the beauty of God. It points to the beauty of God and its magnificence, its beauty. What else? It allowed them to focus on something physical as opposed to relational. Okay, so is that an inadequacy or a, or a, or a magnificence? I would say inadequacy. I think you're, I, Susan, I totally agree with you. The physical, because of our minds, could easily move us away from the relational. It's a distraction. It can become a distraction. Great. Yes? It was made by man, and that's inadequacy, right? So this is a man-made, and therefore it's imperfect. Men came along and destroyed it. Armies came later. Yes. It, it, it actually was, interesting, in 586, it's actually destroyed. God, in, and I was going to read this passage for you because he says this. This is to uh, Solomon. And he says in chapter 9 of Second of 1 Kings, But if you or your sons turn away from me and do, not deserve, and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you and go off and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them and will reject this temple that I have consecrated for my name. Israel will then become a byword and an object of ridicule among the peoples. And though this temple is now imposing, all who pass by will be appalled and will scoff and say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this people? God said he'll destroy it. So it was a conditional temple, a conditional covenant temple. What else did you see about both? What about its magnificence or inadequacy? Any more? You mean that in a good way? Yes. It demonstrated the set-apartness of God. And what do we call that? His holiness. Yes. It, it beautifully displayed to the nation of Israel His holiness. No question about that. God was distinctly different, set apart from anything they were familiar with. But it was easy to... Yeah, go ahead. What were you going to say? No, no, go, no, please. Just the sacrifices on the altar were not permanent. They had to be okay. So there was a limitation to the sacrifices. First of all, they had to be repeated. And what else? They were incomplete in their... Effect. They could never remove sin and the full guilt of it. Yes, Carrie. Tia made the observation that all of the beautiful things, etc., kind of show on the inadequacies column how we get caught up in what we think God wants as worship as opposed to God wanting our hearts. Exactly. You could say that because... These were man's plans, as far as we know. We could easily get caught up in that. Same thing. Okay, great. Great.
Everybody familiar with that of rabbinical tradition? Yeah. Yes, back there. No, that, that was the thing that struck me, which I mentioned where he says, I built this temple. I did this. I did this. And I, I can imagine what God is saying. You did this. And yet he still, um, <laughs> he still. And so there is part of its magnificence is that God did dwell there. God's glory dwelt there. Okay. It was a pointer to his desire for that. Yeah, I think in a good way. Good, Carrie. Anything else? The treasures of the world were used to build. Hmm. That's interesting. Do you mean that as an inadequacy? Is that what you meant? Or That's what I've been tangling with. Okay. So it might be both. The treasures of the world were used. Okay, there was somebody back there. Yes, Jeff. On the magnificence of the physical thing, that was awesome to the people. It took their breath away. Mm -hmm. But yet today, when we study in any Bible study about God living within us, hmm. Mm. And it's, 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 a, it's something that gets into your mind and you just, it, it's hard to describe the magnitude and the magnificence of that. Yeah, so there, it did point in a way that there's an awe that we're supposed to have at this joining, which will point to the future. Now, I hope you continue the process of thinking about that. I'm just going to give you a couple that I came up with as well. And there, there are three that I think God wanted from my perspective. First of all, again, remember, what does he want the people to know? He wants to dwell with them. What does he want to know the people to know? There are great challenges in that happening. And it beautifully points to the holiness of God. Now, that's the what. I think in terms of the beauty, the inadequacy, I think we see these things. It shows God's desire and our desire for something more. God wanted something more. God and we want something more. We don't want to be limited in the, in the space that we have to go to, and we don't want to be limited in the number of people that actually can be there, neither to God. We talked about the focus could become on a place and not the person, and I think the reason, the pointer of the inadequacy of its builder is so flawed that we want a better builder. Now, let's talk about that for a moment. Let's talk about the who. Let me just go over a couple of things of, on uh, Solomon. Uh, well, actually, before I say that, this is the big idea of tonight. At best, at best, Solomon's temple and its magnificence is only a pointer to the perfect temple and its builder. At best. Now, what about the who? Whoops. Ah, sorry. Um, I did a study uh, last fall in a seminary class that I was taking on uh, the biblical theology of leadership, and we studied Solomon. I'm going to give you a couple of facts about him that I learned, some things that I learned about his life. There were three great commands that God gave in Deuteronomy 17 about the king of Israel to Moses for the nation of Israel. Solomon extravagantly disobeyed all three. God told him, don't, God told the nation of Israel, don't let your king, don't, your king should not acquire horses and go to Egypt to do that. Solomon had a mere 12,000 of them. God told 
the king not to have many wives. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. The wives were mainly from royal families that he, get, that he built treaties with around Israel. And the third commandment was to not accumulate large amounts of gold and silver. And yet in 1 Kings 10, 14, we learn that Solomon was the richest man on the earth at that time. He was given wisdom from God, but he demonstrated more than anything else to me, going back to Genesis 1 and 2, how God was protecting us by keeping us from the knowledge of good and evil on our own. Solomon got the complete knowledge of good and evil. Nobody knew as much as him before him or after him from a human perspective, and it destroyed him. Because God was not protecting his use of it. He was not in relationship with God as God speaks over and over again about Solomon. And it destroyed him. In addition to that, the general good that Solomon reigned over, the time of peace of 40 years and prosperity was a peace that came at the treaties with other nations. He expanded the territory of Israel beyond the borders of the promised land in following his David's footsteps. They went outside the borders of the promised land that God had said was theirs. But in addition to that, Solomon used forced labor to build both the temple and his palace. His rule was called a heavy yoke in 1 Kings 12.4 that he put on the people, and there is no record that I can find of the wealth of Solomon flowing down to, to his people. Solomon seemed to start well in areas but finished very, very poorly. You read that passage in 1 Kings 11, that late in life, he not, only, he not only married all these foreign wives, he actually built high places, which were places of worship for their gods. Even the detestable God, the author of Kings says, of the Ammonites. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And God said, because of that, I am ripping the kingdom from you, Solomon. So do you see how Solomon points to a better builder? We want a builder who can do that with righteousness and justice and holiness that Solomon never could possess and did possess. So... With that in mind, if at best Solomon's temple and its magnificence is only a point of the perfect temple and its builder, how do we apply that? We looked at the what, the when, the why, and the who of the temple. How do we apply that idea of it pointing? Jeff mentioned this, uh, mentioned this concept um, in Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul brings this temple metaphor and idea to the present church. And if you noticed, he talks about that we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being this cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of God. It is the church is the place where God now dwells. It's a living entity that is growing, that God designs to grow, to be spreading out among the nations, to bless all peoples. Men and women, the challenge though for us is when we gather, we can have one of two ideas about that. We can think of being in the presence of God, mostly in our culture, with too low a view of that. 
we walk into church and we say, yes, we're the temple of God, and we don't realize that we're talking about a holy, distinctly other, magnificent being that we're talking about. And so we can just casually think about being the dwelling place of God and miss Solomon's temples pointing to how difficult the challenges that had to be overcome for that to happen. But we can also have too high a view. We can think God in his holiness could never dwell here or with me, and therefore I will not approach him with boldness and confidence. You see, Solomon's temple, though, is supposed to point us to Jesus and the, and the temple that he's built and building. The book of uh, the writer of Hebrews brings this passage. Notice again the parallel. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have such a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. We should have absolute confidence because Jesus did the hard thing to make it easy for us to enter in. It took nothing less than the blood of Jesus to make this way, but it takes nothing more, men and women. Nothing less, but nothing more. We can have confidence to enter into the presence of God. Now, with that in mind, though, one of the, with that in mind, one of the Puritans wrote this. God, impress my mind with a consciousness of your greatness. Not to drive me from you, but to inspire my approach to you not to diminish my confidence in you, but to lead me to admire your great condescension. The temple of Solomon is to point us to these ideas, the greatness of God that comes down to make possible for you and me the privilege of entering in. Only a Puritan could have written that. Could have written that, right? There's another application, though, in my mind, though, because you all read this verse this week. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And most Americans, most USA people read that individualistically. I am the temple of God. Because we approach life individualistically. But that's not what Paul's saying there. Every you in that verse is plural. Every you in the, purse, in the verse in Ephesians is plural. Whenever the temple of God is spoken of in the New Testament, it is always in the plural form. The temple is a communal environment. It is never designed to be an individualistic one only. Now, certainly, it gives me and you access individually. But when we're talking about the temple like here, he's speaking about the temple as people gathered. And if we are people gathered, do we have a sense that God is going to do something special in our midst? Humbling question for all of us. When you came tonight... Did you expect God to show up here? In your discussion, you hear something that maybe really challenged you, or you even said something that somebody said, wow, that really helps me. Because men and women, the Spirit of God is here tonight. Anytime the body of Christ. Anytime the people of God gather, whether it's in this place on Sunday morning, in your community group, when you're gathered to prayer, anytime the point is you are the temple of God at that moment. And we should expect God to do things that glorify him in that midst, in that place. Right? But we don't, do we? I don't. 
And that's the problem with the American church. We walk in and it's more like a classroom than it is the temple of God. And we miss what God wants to do there. Certainly he wants us to learn, but, and he wants us to grow, but he wants us to be in the environment of his presence. The, la- the next thing I want you to think about is the incredible implication of the fact that the person sitting next to you is a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. C.S. Lewis put it this way. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. If these people in this room sitting next to each of us were in our glorified bodies, our first inclination would be to fall down and worship them as God. And yet we treat them just like he talks about as dull and uninteresting. It is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all love, all play, all politics. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor, look, look at your table, your neighbors at that table are the holiest object presented to your senses. If he is your Christian bro- neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way as the Eucharist. For in him also Christ very latitat, is truly hidden. The glorifier and the glorified, glory himself is in resonant next to you. We should listen to their stories. We should regard what they have to say. We should offer ourselves to each other knowing that our story and what we have to say matters as well. Because men and women, the last thing is, can you imagine that God has actually chosen you to dwell in you? This holy, magnificent God that the Solomon's temple points to has said, Tammy, Georgia, all what I choose to dwell in you. It should change the way we gather. It should change the way we interact. It should change the way we view ourselves. If we let Solomon's temple point like it should, like God designed it to. With that in mind, I'm going to give you some time now to reflect for the next several minutes on these questions. And I hope you start this tonight, but you let your thinking flow on these throughout the week. And I hope you change the way you pray next week when you go to church, when you go to gather. We don't go to church, we are the church. When you gather with other believers, it would change. So would you just spend some time in your notebook? I'll give you, you've got 10 minutes to look at these questions, Okay. As I said, I hope you will um, carry these thoughts into the week. Um, I'll tell you a little backstory for just a moment on tonight. If you had a copy of the original schedule, I was not supposed to speak tonight. I was supposed to speak next week on the kingdom dividing. And um, I just got to tell you, in the sovereignty of God and His providence, I'm so glad for my sake, that it changed. My study of which I came to this point, that at best Solomon's temple in its magnificence only points, it's only a pointer to the ultimate temple and its builder. Started with a point to the church and, it's, and to the church today. And it's changed the way, as I've studied this, the way I approach tonight and gathering with you all. It changed the way, even this week, that I treated certain individuals with a respect and an awe that they are worthy of as 
temples of the living God. But most importantly, it pointed me to my longing to dwell with God permanently. To be in that new heavens, new heaven and new earth, and to be face to face, to be seen as I've been seen, to see as I've been seen, and to be with Jesus, the one who's made this all possible. So I know from personal experience, this look can impact you. And I hope by God's grace it has. Let's pray. Father, we began tonight by just talking about what an incredible passion you have to dwell with us. And the more I think of that, the more I'm like David to say, what is man that you would take thought of him? Who are we that you, the magnificent God, the holy God of the universe, would want to dwell with us, with me? But by faith, you tell us to embrace the truth that you delight to dwell with each of us and to be in our presence, to move and bring about growth through and in us. I would ask you to, to drive this thought deep in, these thoughts deep in our hearts and this week to stir us to meditate that it would change the way we think about gathering with other believers, that it would change the way we think about how we treat other people and even the way we think about you and ourselves. Thank you for each of these people. Lord, you have made them objects of your love, your desire to dwell with them. Thank you for bringing them to be a part of this gathering tonight and to be a part of this body. May we never, never take that for granted. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.